0: Hey church, this is Ryan here. Sunday, October 14th, the sermon was not recorded, so I'm actually going to re-preach this sermon to you um, in my home office, uh, because this is the beginning of a series we're doing called Be Become Do. It's a foundational series for us as a church, because it has a lot to set up for us. Um, This series has really been something that's been seven years in the making for me, maybe even longer than that, and I've been really looking forward to this um, series for a while because as a church, we're nearing our seventh birthday, and we've been really kind of working things out and learning things and unlearning things for the last number of years about what it looks like to be a church. And what it looks like to be the church. And and then for me personally, the journey I've been on over the last number of years. Um, diving into some work uh, for me in faith walking. Um, I've had some cynicism. Uh, I know it's kind of crazy to think uh, your pastor is a cynical human being. But I've had my own cynicism when it comes to what the church has become. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading. Um, a lot of reading that doesn't necessarily um, isn't necessarily stuff you see on the the popular Christian bestseller lists, uh, but maybe some stuff that's kind of uh, early church history. Um, I've been I've been learning, I've been unlearning, I've been asking different questions, I've been challenging my assumptions. Um, I've got some people in my life like Dan Zvorka, who have have really stretched me as a pastor and. We're having really good conversations um, in, in my world. I'm, I'm having these conversations, and, 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 and I'm having conversations with people like you that may have may be struggling with what this whole following Jesus thing looks like. And there's really a difference between the community we want to be and the community we don't want to be. And so what I want to do is I want to pick up a thread that we had at the end of 1 Corinthians that talked about this idea of gospel, uh, the gospel of sin management. And this idea that really what church for many people has become is, um, you know, maybe modifying their behavior, um, trying really hard, um, attending uh, church and watching paid professionals do churchy, Christiany things. And for many of you, you feel like following Jesus has been really reduced to a bunch of steps and managing your behavior and maybe trying to manage the behavior of others. Uh, But it doesn't seem to have the kind of depth and change change that you read about when you read the Gospels. And so what if none of that stuff is what Jesus meant by follow me? So to start off, I just wanted to talk about Jesus of Nazareth. Because we know him best as the son of God, and, and uh, but he was also Messiah and the Christ, the long-awaited king of Israel. And, and Jesus would show up in the synagogue and listen to scripture being read and listen to interpretations of scripture. But he would also teach. And uh, the, the major category you would put Jesus into if you were a first century person, would be that of a rabbi, um, a teacher. And and what a rabbi would do is a rabbi would travel from town to town with his yoke. And a yoke is a rabbi's set of teachings. Basically, it's a rabbi's way of reading the Torah or the Bible of the day. And so Jesus was this young, brilliant, anti-status quo rabbi from northern Israel, And out of the 90 times that Jesus um, is mentioned having a conversation with someone in scripture, 60 of those times he is called rabbi. He is addressed as teacher. And this has all sorts of implications for what it means to follow Jesus for us. Because following Jesus, this idea of following Jesus has become kind of cliche. But what does it really mean? What did Jesus mean by follow me? And so wherever you're at on that answer, um, whether you're just tuning in or you've never, uh, you, don't, you don't know what church is all about, you don't know what Jesus is all about, I just want you to give us a listen. Um, and maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, and, and maybe there's some things you need to unlearn and relearn. We're going to start in Mark, Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to read a, sec, uh, 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 a smattering of scriptures here to help us kind of gauge where we're at. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 16, it says this, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, and son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay he called them. And they left their nets, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, and they with the hired men and followed him. Mark chapter two, verse thirteen, it says this. Once again Jesus went out out beside the lake, a large crowd became, came to him, and he began to teach them um, because he was a rabbi, and he and he walked along. He he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Mark chapter 3, it says this, Jesus went out up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. And he lists the twelve disciples. And then this next teaching is a very well-known teaching of Jesus. It's Mark 8, 34. It says, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul, or who? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So did you see a pattern in there? In story after story, the call was not, hey, everybody, believe in me and go to heaven when you die. The pattern was, come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Now, the word disciple in Hebrew is talmidim. And to be a disciple, the idea is um, you could translate that word follower, a student, not like a book learning type student, but really the best English word we have is the word apprentice. So to follow a rabbi was to apprentice under a rabbi. Now you need to understand discipleship wasn't something that Jesus invented. Jesus didn't make that social construct up. He didn't decide, "Hey, this is a good idea. I'm going to I'm just going to cruise around and and make up this word and and see if I can get people to follow me." There's a guy named Rabbi Hillel. He had 70 disciples. Another guy, Rabbi Akiva, had 5 disciples, but he had thousands that would follow him all around Israel. And all of this started in Greece under under just well, you know, well-known teachers and 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 philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they were all disciples and uh, mentoring uh, different people all throughout the first century world. So when we talk about discipleship with our set of eyes and our perspective, it tends to get torn out of context, It tends to get squeezed into a post-enlightenment kind of knowledge retention information transfer paradigm, meaning we think discipleship is just Cramming more information about God and the Bible into our skulls, but what did Jesus mean by "Follow Me" in his context? So we're going to nerd out a little bit. There's going to be a little bit of uh, time here. We're going to we're going to look at the history of it. So if you want to look up some stuff by a guy named Ray Vanderlaan, um, he's got a lot of pioneering work on this. But some of this is going to be familiar ground for some of you. Um, you've heard this before from me. Um, but really, this is really sets up where we're going over the next uh four to ten weeks um as we dig in this, because in the first century, discipleship was the apex of Jewish education, meaning this is how people learned, this is how people grew, this is how people changed. So when you were a child. And you were a Jewish child, ages 4 to 12, you went to a school called Beit Sefer, which is called House of the Book. And basically what would happen when you would start each year of learning, the rabbi would take honey and would cover your slate, the slate you would write on. And honey was the sign of God's favor. And you can kind of recall in the image of the promised land, this idea of a land flowing with milk and honey. So uh, for Jewish people, honey was was uh, kind of a uh, like a really celebrated thing. And he would say, now class, lick the honey off of your slate and off of your fingers. And as they did this, the rabbi would say, may the words of God be sweet to your taste, sweeter than honey to your mouth. And that comes out of Psalm 119. And at Beit Sefer, these children would memorize over their whole history, they would memorize the Torah. Can you imagine that? Genesis through Deuteronomy, memorized by age 12. Now, the vast majority of kids were done by age 12, meaning the boys would go on to apprentice their fathers in the family biz, (coughs) and girls would get ready to be married and run a household. And so, obviously, those were the times. But if you were really excelling at Beit Sifar, and if you were really... um, high-achieving student, you would be an invited to join some of the best of the best in a school called Beit Talmud or Beit Midrash, which was called the House of Learning. And it was a school built on the side of the synagogue, and you would memorize most of, if not all, the rest of the Old Testament. Now, keep in mind, it's a very oral culture, and and that might make you feel better Um about your own uh, scripture understanding, but these kids were serious. Now, almost everybody would be done after this point, meaning most kids, most boys would get to the age of 16, and then they would graduate out, and then they would go home, and they would learn their family trade then. But the elite, the best of the best, they would sit for an interview with their rabbi, And if you were lucky enough to get one, your rabbi would interrogate interrogate you on the Mishnah, on interpretations of Torah, your passion, your commitment, your practices. And if he thought you had what was needed, the acumen and the drive to become a rabbi yourself, he would say something like, come and follow me. Come and be one of my Talmudim. Now, the goal for you was to become exactly like your rabbi. So say you made the cut. Say you passed the interview. You would have three clear goals in your life from that point forward. The first one would be to be with your rabbi 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And and you hear the words of Jesus there. He says that they might be with him. So you would follow around your rabbi. You would follow around your rabbi and sleep nearby, eat with them, listen to them, ask questions, do whatever your rabbi did. And the goal would be, since literally there was no paved roads, the goal, the phrase was, this is a very famous phrase that said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Like the, your life was so close and you, you spent so much time close by your rabbi that the dust of the travel would actually cover you. The second goal you would have would be to become like your rabbi. Now, when we read, when Jesus says, um, come and I will make you fishers of men. That's not a cheesy joke by Jesus. It's not a pun. Jesus was funnier than that. Uh, Jesus was not saying, hey, You're fishing for fish. How about you want to fish for people? And there was like a chuckle. Fishers of men is a phrase. It's a well-known Hebrew idiom that means great teacher. So really to be a teacher, to be a fisher of men, was your goal was to capture the minds and the imaginations of the people you taught. So basically what Jesus was saying is I'm a great teacher and I will make you into great teachers as well. And that is the heart and soul of apprenticeship. See, we live in an age where everybody wants to be different. Everybody wants to be unique. Everybody's searching for their special identity. But the goal uh, of, of, of of a student apprenticing the rabbi was to be the exact carbon copy of their rabbi. You wanted to be just like your rabbi. You wanted to talk like him. You wanted to teach like him. You wanted to do everything just like him. That was your second goal. Your third goal was to do what your rabbi did. So when Jesus turns to his disciples and say, "Okay, it's your turn." He says, "I'm going to send you out and I've given you authority to drive out demons and to preach the gospel." They would come back and they would talk about it. <clears throat> Something like this idea of, "I believe in you. Now go and make disciples, go and make more" Talmudim. So with that little history lesson being over, let's flip this over from first century Israel to modern day Denver. What does it mean to apprentice Jesus? Does it mean just to go to church? Is it about having all the right facts squeezed into your brain? Is it filling your calendar with a whole bunch of Christian events? is it just trying to manage your behavior so you're you you appear more moral? No, it's I would say it's none of those things. The goal for you to follow Jesus is to order your life around the same exact three goals: to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. Now, how does it work to be with Jesus? We're going to be talking about that this coming weekend, but basically the working definition is, uh, this means that the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness and connection to the Spirit. Like This is the baseline for all of life in the kingdom. To start learning how to live in a constant state of awareness and connection to the Spirit. Like carving out time to connect with God. John 15, Jesus is talking, he says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. See, Jesus' metaphor is a branch. And this idea of being connected to the vine by being a branch and an abiding The word remain is to abide, to abide in Jesus. The author Dallas Willard puts it like this. And I absolutely love this quote. He says, the first and most basic thing we can do, can and must do, is keeping God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in this practicing the presence of God is to direct to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him in the early time of our practicing he says we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than god but these are habits not the law of gravity and can be broken a new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping god before us Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. So his point is, living in in a constant state of awareness and connection to the Spirit, it actually takes practice. Like the things that Jesus did. Prayer, fasting. Sabbath, solitude, these were abiding and remaining in the vine to present yourself before God, to push away distraction, to be alone with your creator. And it's a very difficult thing. It doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, in my life, distraction is a huge issue. So it all starts there. It all starts becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. That's great, but it all starts in being with Jesus. That's the first goal. The second goal is to become like Jesus. So out of that place of abiding, the goal to become like our rabbi, like Jesus, begins to take shape. That's where it starts. And and this is all insider lingo. The insider lingo is... Sanctification. Another way uh, to put it is to be formed in the image of God. So to be spiritually formed in in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus. As we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Now, here's the thing. I don't like to hear this, let alone to say it. But the reality is, every single one of us, we're all being formed. Like, we are all a a compilation of our influences. The question is not, are you being formed? The question is, by who or what? See, you and I are being discipled. Maybe mostly, you and I are being discipled unintentionally. So when you project your life out three months, five years, or a decade, who are you becoming? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Is Jesus being projected through you, and your personality, and your gender, and your skill set, and your stage of life? Is that who you're becoming, or are you becoming something else or someone else? See, here's the thing: I want to grow into that. Like that's what I want, and. I say that, but I don't know if that's really happening. I don't know if I'm putting the intentional work in. Now, this isn't all about work. This isn't like a salvation by works thing. But I want my behavior to be a product of my inward transformation, not out of my guilt or my shoulds. I want what the New Testament writers call transformation. And that's what we're going to be teaching on the rest of the fall, all the way up through Christmas. How do we partner with God and each other to be transformed? And so to be with Jesus and to become like Jesus are two pieces. But the third one is to do what Jesus did, to carry on the work of our rabbi. Now, if the goal for you was to become exactly like your rabbi, Then, what did our rabbi do? What did Jesus do? Well, as I see it, you can break it down into about 10 categories of the things that Jesus did. The first one would have been preaching the gospel, teaching the way, uh, healing the sick, casting out demons, eating and drinking with people far from God, doing justice, peacemaking, praying prophesying and then Jesus also stood up against religious and political corruption. Now all that seems like kind of overwhelming like I can't do all that stuff but when you think about it, um, I got a friend of mine that I know who's a plumbing apprentice which means he's he's apprenticing a journeyman plumber and his goal is not to know all about plumbing just in his head. it's actually to be able to plumb a house. And to the standards to which the journeyman standards are set. To actually do what the master plumber does. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. It doesn't, it doesn't work as a hobby. I mean, I got a lot of hobbies in my life. I like to smoke meat. Um, I like to do a lot of different things. Those are hobbies. The problem is, is that many of us have made following Jesus a hobby. We've made discipleship to Jesus kind of a side thing. But following Jesus makes the most sense when it is the focal point of our life. I mean, as your life, as a banker, as a stay-at-home mom, as a teacher, as a caregiver, to follow Jesus intentionally with all of your life intentionally making the focus of your life, your apprenticeship to Jesus. That's the invitation for you. That's the invitation for me. When Jesus says, come and be my Talmudim, come and be my apprentice. Notice that Jesus doesn't invite people to come and be a Christian. He says, come and be my apprentice. You know, in scripture, and it's really important that we understand this, In scripture, the word Christian is only used three times, and it's really only in a negative light. But the word disciple is used 268 times, more than any other moniker for what it means to be sons and daughters of God. So here's the thing that I've been wrestling with. The difference between being a Christian and being an apprentice of Jesus See, because for most people, I think, in the U.S., the word Christian means going to church here and there. It means believing the basics of the story. It means trying to be a, a moral person. It actually might mean something just more of what you're not, meaning I'm a Christian, I'm not a Muslim, or I'm a Christian, I'm not an atheist. Or merely that you believe that God and Jesus, you know, sounds like a good dude. But really what I think for many people in the U.S., being a Christian means that Jesus is following you rather than you following Jesus. Meaning we we are really good at setting up our own lives, setting up our own dreams, setting up our own agendas. And then somehow trying to co-opt God into blessing it. And this is a huge problem in the U.S. Actually, in a recent Gallup poll, Nationwide poll, 76% of Americans claim to be Christian. And I don't know about you, but if 76% of the of, of the population was following Jesus and making the kingdom a priority, there would be a lot different world we'd live in. Independent surveys actually put the number of people who actually are following and practicing the ways of Jesus at more of like 8%. So 76% check Christian. And under 10% are actually following Jesus. So the reality is, I mean, I just don't think the gospel writers or Jesus actually had the intent of some kind of religious affiliation being the important thing. And what's interesting is in the gospel writer, uh, the gospels, the writer of the gospels actually distinguished between, between two groups of people, the disciples and the crowd. When you hear the word disciples and you hear the word and then the crowd, don't just think about the 12 disciples because he had hundreds of followers. He actually had male and female disciples and no other rabbi had female disciples. But when you hear disciples in the crowd, there's actually a, it's actually a literary device. There's a sharp divide between the two groups. And the, the writers are actually probing a little bit to their readers saying, which group are you in? Are you a face in the crowd or are you an apprentice of Jesus? Another quote from Dallas Willard, he says this, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs, and, and just stop right there, thinking about all the heartbreaking needs in our world. Poverty and um, injustice and racial tension and divided country and war in Syria and all these things happening. So, think about all those things. He says the greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. Steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's like, wow. Now, two real quick things. Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. He's looking for apprentices apprentices to the kingdom of God. And the second thing you need to know is the invitation is open to anybody. See, in Jesus' day, discipleship was for the best of the best of the best. But notice how Jesus completely reverses the rabbi-disciple thing. See, Jesus, the rabbi, actually calls the disciples rather than waiting for a disciple to come to him. In fact, he beckons for all to come to him. It wasn't just the spiritual elite or the best of the best could be his disciple. He was calling for anybody to come to him. Remember his words. Matthew 16, he says, Whoever wants to be my Talmudim, my disciple. John 15, he says, You did not choose me, I chose you. And, and in Matthew 11, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. So it doesn't matter where you've come from or not come from. It doesn't matter what you've done or not done. It doesn't matter what. Whether you're smart enough or wealthy enough or from a good family or whether you have act together or not. It doesn't matter. You are invited here and now, wherever you're listening to this, to follow Jesus, to apprentice Jesus. And here's the thing. This kind of life that Jesus puts on offer, he calls it life and life to the full. This kind of life. Where you are changed from the inside out, where you learn to love not just your friends but your enemies. Where you where you begin to be set free from lust and greed and the inertia of this world and how this world operates and how sin fills our hearts and makes our hearts beat a different direction. You, are lear- you, you are actually begin to get set free from that. Where you become part of a family with new brothers and sisters in community. See, this kind of life that Jesus has on offer, it won't just happen. It's not a magical switch. See, Jesus' most famous sermon was the Sermon on the Mount. We've never read it before. It's Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. It's one of his most important teachings, his manifesto. Now it's not idealistic. It's actually really messy because Jesus assumes that you and I will mess up, that we won't be perfect, that we will we will screw up, that we'll sin. He assumes that we will sin and that someone will sin against you. He assumes that you will get tangled up in, in your heart with money. He assumes that you'll you'll have an issue with somebody that's done you wrong. He assumes ordinary life, but still he th- he throws out a high bar. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. This idea of like money and and lust and greed and and all these things that pull at us. We could ask, how's that going for all of us? Now, if you place close pay place close attention, Jesus begins and ends the sermon on the mount with something really interesting. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, 19. It says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But listen to this, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then you fast forward two chapters. At the end of At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, it says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But whoever, pract- whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now here's the thing. That is the end of the sermon. It's kind of an awkward ending. But Jesus bookends his Sermon on the Mount with the word practice. Jesus assumes that this way of living... The life he is presenting to all those who would apprentice him is going to take practice. Not a hobby, but a focus. Now hear me, by practice I don't mean try really hard. That's not what I'm saying. That does not work. What I'm talking about is is training, not trying. And I used the analogy the other week of... Of running a marathon. You don't just wake up one day and go, I'm going to run a marathon today. It actually takes training. In fact, if you just got up one day and tried to run a marathon, you would fail. You would be miserable. This last Sunday, I talked about this idea of uh, in my life, physically, of not being able to. um, I'm not very flexible. I'm not a flexible human being at all. And I want to be the kind of person that can do things uh, more easily with my body than I have been able to do. And so it's actually taking intentionality for me, stretching exercises, a little bit of yoga here and there, like intentionally working on my flexibility. And the reality is if you want to experience life with God and life to the full, meaning if you want to experience God to terraform your inner world and have your inner world leak out everywhere and and just bless the people around you. It takes intentionality. And Do you see the difference between that and managing your sin? See, one of them is a band-aid and makeup. The other one is real healing and deep and real transformation. And so what does this have to do with any what does this have to do with us? Well, a couple real quick things as we finish. One, Sunday is really important as we gather as a church. Like it's it's important to encourage each other and worship together and and be challenged, but it's really secondary. The question is what does it look like to follow Jesus? And the reality is you and I are all invited. You're not invited by me, you're invited by Jesus. And maybe some of you are cynical, and maybe some of you have been burned, and maybe some of you hear these words and say, man, that could never happen in my life. Maybe there's places in your inner life that Jesus has just not touched yet. And maybe there's some places in your life that you don't even know that God wants to do work in. My challenge for you is to step into community. Step into this intentionality. And and believe and just trust that Jesus was and is actually right. That yes, life is very hard. But life with your creator is unbelievable. And he is offering life and life to the full. So let me pray. And this just kind of kicks off our our series, Be Become do. God, thank you so much for the work that you are doing in my life, in the life of this great community. God, I pray that we would take a risk and, and get courageous as we step into and get intentional about what it looks like to be with you, to become like you, and to do what you did and may that form form the grid by which we live our lives and so we pray these things in your name amen